Hello, good morning, and welcome to Ask the Docs, a Fertility Institute of Hawaii live stream. This month, our topic is PCOS, polycystic ovarian syndrome. Thank you for joining us today. We have a lot of great information to share with you. My name is Dr. Emily Goulet, and I have here with me Dr. Anat Carmon Hello. and Dr. Uh, John Fraterelli. Hello. Hi. Okay, so I'm going to dive into today. What is PCOS? What does PCOS mean? And I'll lead with, well, PCOS is a lot of different things, but uh, in general, the criteria that we use, you have to um, qualify with two out of three criteria and no other history of other endocrine issues. So if you've already got something like Cushing's or um, Kahn's disease, you know, that sort of disqualifies you from having PCOS. But uh, those three criteria, which in general we want to see you meet two out of three of, is a history of um, abnormal infrequent periods or even no periods, uh, as signs of excess androgen symptoms, uh, such as acne or unwanted hair growth. And last but not least, polycystic ovaries on ultrasound. Dr. Carmon, can you describe for us a little bit what polycystic ovaries and ultrasound means? Sure, absolutely. Thanks for asking. Uh, so there are a few things that we see on ultrasound when we're looking at polycystic ovaries. Um, the criteria for uh, PCOS in terms of ultrasound findings basically just rely on number of follicles. Um, so we see a lot of follicles on, on both sides in, in polycystic ovary syndrome, but it's not just the number of follicles, it's also um, the appearance. You guys might have heard of this string of pearls appearance of the, um, of the follicles within the ovary. So you see kind of this um, very, this center, which looks empty, doesn't have a lot of follicles in it, and then lots and lots and lots of little eggs all the way around the ovary. Um, and that's that, that string of pearls appearance. And that's thought to be related to um, some of those uh, um, androgen secreting cells within the ovary, which um, become more active and, um, and hypertrophy a little bit that uh, um, kind of causes, causes that appearance and the follicles appear to be around the periphery for that, for that reason. Um, Dr. Fratarelli, can you uh, can you expound upon why we care about PCOS? Why does it matter for both fertility as well as long-term health? Well, I think it, it, there are, and, and those are the two issues that we have. You know, when we see a patient with with PCOS, I always ask them, you know, which road are we going to go? What are we? Are you looking to get pregnant right now? Or are you looking to try to um, ameliorate your PCOS symptoms? Yeah. And so, patients with PCOS long term have increased risk of heart disease, have increased risk of diabetes, and all of the sequelae that that kind of go along with that. Um, and so, you have to manage them long term, and in order for them to uh, have lower um, medical risk. Now, for our patients who are wanting to get pregnant, the issue for them is that they're not releasing an egg. Uh, and so if they're not ovulating um, and not releasing an egg, it's hard to get pregnant. I always explain that it's very akin to, you know, having a male partner who isn't producing any sperm. Um, the difference is there are eggs, they're just not being released. And, and so there are certainly uh, ways that we can get the ovary to release the eggs and get the eggs uh, available 
uh, so that a patient can achieve, fertility, can achieve fertility. I also just want to point out how common PCOS is. So it does depend a little bit on the um, definition that's used. The most common definition uh, is also sort of the most encompassing and makes PCOS um, more uh, more prevalent if you use that definition. Um, and so up to 20% of, of women actually will meet the definition of PCOS. So it's uh, if, if you've been diagnosed with PCOS, you're in very, very good company. Um, and not all of those women are probably going to have those long-term consequences that Dr. Fratarelli just talked about. It's um, mainly those women who have some of the um, endocrine abnormalities. So those women who have um, very irregular cycles and depends on how irregular those cycles are, women who have and who were not receiving treatment for it, and women who have um, insulin resistance, women who have very high levels of testosterone, those are the women who typically will have more of those long-term consequences. Um, women who have more of a milder type of, uh, of PCOS may not really have those long-term health issues, but may face some issues with fertility, conception, um, and the, some of the bothersome symptoms that can go along with having PCOS. Uh, so it, it really is something that presents very differently in, in, different, in different women and um, can have very, very different consequences depending on the, the symptoms and signs. You and know, and that's, I was going to say, that's, that's a good point. I guess before we get too far into PCOS is that it, it, there's a spectrum uh, of um, different phenotypes that people will see. You can have very mild PCOS or very severe PCOS, and you can have patients who have a lot of hirsutism, a lot of abnormal hair growth, um, and patients who have none, patients who are obese, patients who aren't. Um, and, and so it's it's really almost like, you know, several different syndromes put, lumped into one, and, and not everybody is the same when we when we talk about PCOS. So there really is an individualization when you're looking at, you know, how to treat somebody um, and what their symptoms are. I think that's very well put. And I think um, a lot of doctors who are not endocrinologists or fertility specialists, when they see a young woman or uh, a reproductive age woman who is having irregular periods, because PCOS is so prevalent and so common, their instinct might be to diagnose, oh, well, this must be PCOS and, and, and let's, uh, let's treat it like PCOS. But I think it's important to remember that irregular cycles can happen independent of PCOS. So just because you're skipping periods, you can't presume you're having PCOS. Be aware that there are other parts to that PCOS diagnosis and make sure you um, talk to your provider and make sure that um, PCOS is truly what you have and that you are um, pursuing the right treatment. Um, uh, with PCOS, there's... Um, individuals who who may have cycled normally before and then later on in life sort of develop the full-blown PCOS diagnosis. Uh, Dr. Carmone, what are your thoughts as far as people who say, you know, well, I, I didn't used to be, I used to have regular monthly periods. How, how is it that I'm just now developing PCOS after I've already had a child? Yeah, so, um, well, I don't know, but <laughs> uh, there can be a few different reasons for that. So PCOS is, um, it's thought to be something that you kind of will always 
um, will always have, but there are certain things that can worsen it and certain things that can make it better. So for example, um, obesity, this is, and sort of, this is a common misconception. Obesity doesn't cause PCOS. Um, so it's, it's actually, there, there aren't, um, if you do studies looking at uh, women and really trying to fit them into whether or not they fit into the PCOS category, you're not going to see a higher rate of, of obesity among those women. What you will see, though, is worsening of certain PCOS symptom, symptomatology with obesity. Um, and one of those things is ovulatory function and insulin resistance with obesity. So it, it does start to compound. So if you already have an issue with PCOS and insulin resistance because you have PCOS, um, you may still have regular cycles, but you know you add some weight gain to that, and now um, your polycystic ovary syndrome might worsen, uh, only because you're sort of adding in other comorbidities. Um, and then similarly, patients who have PCOS who are obese might lose some weight and regain ovulatory function. It's not because their PCOS necessarily goes away. Um, and some of those health risks don't necessarily go away, unfortunately, but um, losing weight now has improved their ovulatory function to the point where, you know, they're kind of ovulating regularly, even with polycystic ovary syndrome. The other thing that can actually improve polycystic ovary syndrome um, is um, fortunately or unfortunately <laughs> is aging. And uh, for, for, for women who have it, um, their ovarian reserve is going to decline a little bit and they're going to have fewer of those follicles, which are actively producing all of those androgens, all that testosterone that causes some of the issues of polycystic ovary syndrome. And so because of ovarian aging, their PCOS symptoms um, tend to improve. Uh, and so older women might find that their PCOS actually gets, gets better uh, compared to when they were younger. PCOS is a bit of a medical mystery. Um, we don't quite know exactly what causes PCOS, but there are some theories as to risk factors and, and what does cause it. Dr. Fratarelli, can you uh, maybe elaborate a little bit on, on what causes PCOS and who should worry that they may be at risk for having it? Um, well, you know, that's, that's a great question because we, we do not know what exactly causes PCOS. We do know that there certainly seems to be a genetic component. Um, if you have family members that have PCOS, then you, there, you tend to have a more, you're more likely to have PCOS yourself. There also are environmental factors, um, and those are the ones that we don't completely understand. There are um, studies and animal models that would suggest that actually uh, the things that you might be um, that might influence you when you're in the womb before you're before you're actually born could actually you know, impact whether or not you have PCOS and um, and even things that might happen in you know generations ahead, you know before you could it could increase your risk of, of PCOS but we don't necessarily know what the exact gene or the exact trigger is that is uh, that would cause that, that causes PCOS. Um, you know, one thing that I, I, a question I get frequently from patients is, and you say I've got a lot of follicles, but that's not 
a cyst, you know, so where are these cysts that you talk about? Or, you know, back when I was a teenager, I went to the emergency room and they saw a large cyst on my ovaries and, you know, it's gone now, but does that mean I have PCOS? And I think that terminology of follicles and cysts can be a little misleading sometimes. I tell patients based when I look at their ovaries, um, I want to see a lot of follicles because that to me indicates they've got a good ovarian reserve. And the egg, as it grows, it secretes fluid around it. And when we see a, a pocket of fluid or a fluid collection anywhere, we can label it as a cyst. And so um, the, the label as far as follicle versus cyst just depends on whether who was looking at the ultrasound, if they liked it or if they didn't like it. If they liked it, if it was a, a follicle that should have been there at the right time of the month and it was the right size, we call it a follicle. If it maybe was a little bit larger than it was supposed to be, or maybe if we see too many of them and there's um, and they're not ovulating, we might apply the term cysts to it just to make it fit the polycystic ovarian morphology um, a little bit better. But a cyst is simply does whoever is whoever looking at it do they like it or not? And if they don't like it, they call it a cyst. If they like it, I call it a follicle. That's an interesting way of putting it. I like that. Yeah, I mean, cyst is sort of the general term. Everything's a cyst if it's a fluid-filled sac. Um, and then, you know, whether it's follicular or uh, or not is um, kind of a matter of whether it's functional or not, whether it's supposed to be there or not. Um, I did want to just take a second to answer this question about surging, surging in LH uh, in patients with PCOS, whether that indicates that an egg is being released or not. Um, and I just wanted to point out, and I think we should probably after this get into specifics of the symptoms and what we see with PCOS, but one of the things we see with polycystic ovary syndrome is high LH. So to back up for a second, LH is one of the hormones that um, your, that's made by your pituitary to uh, uh, stimulate the release uh, of a final, of, of an egg. Um, and so without an LH surge, you're not going to ovulate. You need that LH surge for a certain period of time in order to release an egg. Um, patients with polycystic ovary syndrome, not all of them, but many of them tend to already have high LH levels. Um, and so that can kind of create um, an issue with ovulatory, with, with monitoring ovulation, because sometimes patients will just check their um, ovulation predictor kits and they just always see high LHs. Um, because they, at baseline, have a high LH. That doesn't mean that you're ovulating all the time. Unfortunately, it means that you kind of have this higher LH and um, you may not be ovulating. So for those patients, um, sometimes the ovulation predictor kits don't really work very well. If you truly have a surge above baseline, um, then that, and it's, and it's sustained for a period of time, then that typically does indicate um, that the egg is in the process of being released, that it will be released. Uh, but it's just that, that, you know, testing for that is not always really straightforward using at-home ovulation predictor kits in patients with PCOS. You know, I recently had a patient show me her data from, I be believe it was a Mira app um, or a device that measures LH levels and uh, S-trial levels, E3, um, which we don't typically test for um, at the doctor's office. 
Um, and that app was indicating, oh, this might be a search here, this might be a search there. And the patient was really confused because she could see it graphed out for her, oh, there is a little bit of an increase here. And on their graph, it looked like a big, um, big jump. But, you know, going from an LH level of 10 to 12, for us, a reproductive endocrinologist, we're, we're a little skeptical if that is truly a surge. And as far as how as trial levels um, reflect, um, we don't really use that in evaluating um, mature follicles. What we do want to track and which we measure here in the office, uh, depending on what treatment you're on, are estradiol levels. And that can tell us, are you growing a mature egg or not? And, you know, LHs are also, you know, they're secreted in a pulsatile fashion, too. So they're going to change every time you measure it. You're going to see a different a, a different value. So going, you know, from 8 to 10 to 12 and back to 8, that's normal. Um, you know, what that what would typically uh, define ovulation would be going from 8 to 40 or, you know, some a huge jump like that. Um, and, that, and that's what we don't see a whole lot in, in PCOS patients unless they're having regular, more regular menstrual cycles and ovulating some. Uh, Dr. Carmon, to circle back to what you had mentioned earlier, the specific symptoms of PCOS, uh, can you allow, can you help us dive into yeah. that a little bit further? Absolutely. So these are not present in everyone, okay, but um, the symptoms of PCOS typically have to do with irregular cycles and elevated androgen levels, insulin sensitivity, okay, so, um, or lower insulin resistance, rather, not the opposite of that. So um, one of the symptoms is uh, irregular cycles because patients are not ovulating regularly. They um, are not going to have regular periods. Um, they may have anovulatory bleeding. So they might have kind of just random bleeding at times that results from the lining just sort of growing, 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 and then just randomly sloughing. Um, and so that can be very dysfunctional. It can be just spotting. It can be very heavy bleeding. It can just be sort of inconsistent. Um, the elevated testosterone levels that some patients with PCOS have will have very specific constellation of symptoms, um, uh, including um, excessive hair growth in places where women typically don't want hair. So excessive like facial hair and things like that. But you may even see male pattern baldness. Um, so it's uh, related to, to the higher testosterone levels. Um, acne, oily skin related to that as well. Um, and then insulin resistance. So patients will have higher rates of prediabetes as well as, as diabetes related to those things. And that's something that um, patients with PCOS should always uh, watch for. Um, having irregular cycles, as long as you're having a few periods a year, this is typically not, not an issue. But um, if you're going a very long time without having periods at all, um, then that can increase your risk for endometrial precancer. So it, like a uterine precancer or uterine cancer. Thankfully, that is the easier thing to remedy, okay? Because um, basically what you need to do is ensure that um, you're having a regular withdrawal bleed. So even if you're not ovulating and you're not interested in getting pregnant, um, you just need a doctor to monitor and um, give you kind of progesterone regularly or put you on a birth control or pill or marina. I mean, there's a few different options, okay? But basically there needs to be something happening to prevent you from uh, developing endometrial cancer or precancer. 
Should we talk about treatment? Dr. Fratarelli, let's talk a little bit about some of the treatments for PCOS. Well, you, you just went over some of the non-fertility type treatments. You know, again, if someone's not having regular cycles, you really want them to shed their lining. So, you know, doing birth control pills or some kind of progesterone, whether it's an oral progesterone or an IUD type progesterone um, is, is important. I think that the, one of the, and I, I always do this, I skip to medical treatment before really kind of going, circling back to saying, saying well, really what, what we know helps almost everybody is diet and exercise. Um, and, and that will help even patients, even PCOS patients who are, who are on the thin side, having a, a, a normal, healthy diet and an exercise routine, if they don't already, will alleviate some of the PCOS symptoms. It will help alleviate the androgen levels and it will help normalize their insulin sensitivity a little bit. And that, that might be enough just to get them to start ovulating. Um, most women will need some other treatment as well, but, but some for some patients that might be enough. And so we always wanna talk about doing that in combination with other therapy. Um, if somebody is wanting fertility, uh, then typically once we've talked about the diet and exercise part, then we would we would discuss uh, doing ovulation induction with some type of oral medication or possibly an injectable medicine, medicine or, or combination. Uh, clomiphene citrate, which is uh, I think most people are, are aware of, and letrozole or Fremara are, are the other uh, is the other option as far as oral. And then the injectable medicines are the gonadotropins, the you know where you're giving an FSH uh, in an injectable subcutaneous form. And FSH is secreted pulsatively from the uh, from from the pituitary gland and causes the follicle to to release. Uh, and and what happens with PCOS and you know for patients is you know women are producing an FSH to get the follicle to grow, but there's so many follicles that are available that you're not producing enough FSH in a normal cycle to get everything to grow. And so they, they all kind of are stagnant and they don't grow enough. And so you, you need to kind of increase that FSH productivity by either, you know, oral medicine, which causes the, um, the pituitary to secrete some more FSH or giving the FSH in an injectable form. Uh, and then the other, um, treatment that I that I neglected to mention was if patients are having are not wanting to get pregnant and they're having some um, and they're and they're having a hirsutism uh, which is abnormal hair growth there are some other treatments that you can use besides the birth control pills there are anti-androgens that you can use there's spironolactone there's other things that you can use to try to decrease the the hair uh, the hair growth um, as well as metformin, which I think most people have are, are aware of too. It's an uh, insulin sensitizer that, that people use with diabetes quite often. And, and we do use it for, for PCOS, although not as much now with PCOS as we did 10, 20 years ago. I, I think that we, we just don't see a huge benefit from it. There are some patients who will benefit from it, but but in general, the, the side effects are in general usually so bad for patients that, that it's the, it's not worth the benefit, and and the side effects usually are just GI issues with you know, gas and bloating and diarrhea and stomach upset. Yeah, a lot of patients ask me, well, why why am I on metformin? I, I read online this is a diabetes medication. I thought I have PCOS and I don't like the side effects. 
Um, and it circles back to that whole uh, predisposition. And we think that there's something hand in hand with insulin resistance and PCOS that they um, are related somehow and that there is some impaired uh, sugar and insulin signaling. So back to that lifestyle and diet modification, there is also evidence for PCOS individuals who try to stick to a lower carb diet. For those of you into the keto diets or the Atkins diet and wanted an excuse to be on those, um, that that may help with the insulin sensitivity and, um, and helping the PCOS symptoms. Um, for patients who don't like metformin I, uh, but like to take supplements, I also mentioned that something like inositol, and that's available in several different brands, um, is much better tolerated than metformin, and there is some soft evidence that that might also help with that impaired um, insulin signaling with, um, with PCOS. So that's something too people can look into and, and try and see if that suits well for them. Um, uh, are there any surgical and, ways? I would say, and, and that kind of goes back to what I kind of mentioned before, just so, you know, the, 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 you know, from the mild PCOS to very pure, very severe PCOS. And there's so many different phenotypes out there that there, you know, all, there's so many different treatments too, depending on what the patient really has and, and needs. Are there any, um, does anyone want to speak up about any procedural or surgical treatments for PCOS and when we might consider those? Well, I don't know. Have you guys, have either one of you ever done ovarian drilling? I have. I have. Oh. Yeah. Yes. yeah. I, I thought that might have been, might have been before your time. Yeah. No, I mean, it did pick up a little bit. There, there has been some talk in the literature recently about ovarian drilling as being something that um, is not completely unreasonable to do in certain patients who find uh, if they're, especially if they're having the procedure, an, another procedure done anyway, at the same time, I think people just hesitate to, uh, to actually do a laparoscopy or something for someone just for that when there are pretty good medical reasons. But ovarian drilling is very effective. I mean, it's essentially just damaging the um, excessive numbers of, of follicles that are already present. And it's uh, really been shown to improve the metabolic profile of patients and improve the symptomatology for sure. I think the question is, you know, at what cost, right? Because you have to put the patient through um, a surgery and, and that, you know, you have to access the ovaries um, and, uh, and that in and of itself puts the patient at risk. And then you're essentially damaging the ovarian reserve a little bit as well. And um, if this is a patient who does want children, you know, maybe her ovarian reserve is fine right now, but in the future we might be kind of speeding up um, uh, issues with the ovaries if, you know, she's planning on conceiving in a while. So I think that that is an important thing to keep in mind, but in terms of how effective ovarian drilling is, I think the, the, it's, it's really, really effective. It sounds kind of terrible to say ovarian drilling, but uh, that's what it's called. Yeah, it's basically where we, we, we burn holes into the ovary. And, you know, I think we're really fortunate here in the state of Hawaii where um, uh, we have numerous um, options and, and funding sources for fertility treatment. Um, I think where I did them in the past were in areas where insurance would cover drilling, but nothing else. And so uh, those patients didn't have any other choice to treat their PCOS. Um, I did want to point out something really interesting that uh, that I learned 
looking into this. So, you know, it is usually true that something that is as common as PCOS does confer some type of benefit, that there is some type of benefit on a population level uh, to having polycystic ovary syndrome, right? And, and so that's the case for a lot of um, uh, diseases that continue to be propagated um, among humans. And so interestingly, um, I read some literature uh, written by, by anthropologists, cultural anthropologists, specifically looking at polycystic ovary syndrome. And so, you know, back in um, caveman days, I know that that's probably not the appropriate way. Um, <laughs> I don't know, like, what time period that was or how long ago it was. Okay, but like, just bear with me. So um, I'd have to pull the paper out to figure that out. But back in the day, long time ago, um, polycystic ovary syndrome conferred a pretty uh, interesting benefit to women um, because they did have impaired fertility, but not, uh, it didn't typically completely obliterate fertility in these women. Okay, so these women had some smaller families. Um, so they still had children, were able to pass on their genes, but they had smaller families and then were able to care for their children better, so to speak, compared to, you know, women who had 15 kids or whatever. And so the families tended to survive better and therefore they had more children actually survive. And in addition to that, that insulin resistance and um, uh, the insulin resistance and the elevated testosterone levels actually also conferred a, a little bit of additional um, strength to the women in terms of their um, ability, their muscle strength and their ability to fast. Um, and so these were um, hardier women in those times. And that's, uh, the thought is that that's one of the major reasons why this type of insulin resistance and um, impaired, but not completely obliterated fertility um, continue to be propagated among um, earlier human populations. Fun, right? Yeah. So cool. Very interesting. Yeah. Um, circling back to treatments for PCOS, we've talked a little bit about um, medications that are used for ovulation induction, such as letrozole and clomid. We've talked about some adjuncts like uh, metformin. Uh, we've talked about one of the surgeries, but uh, which is ovarian drilling, but IVF is also used quite commonly for PCOS. And there are certain circumstances when um, it might benefit somebody with PCOS, and particularly if you have a, a form of PCOS that does not respond well to the ovulation induction medication. When there are some PCOS individuals, we can give them very high doses of ovulation induction medications and they still won't respond. And so if we're not getting a response with oral fertility meds, then um, uh, uh, there can be sort of this fine line between how much is too much to safely induce an ovulation. They might respond if we give them a really high amount, but they might also grow seven or eight follicles and, and that would not be a safe way to trying to ovulate and get pregnant, um, without controlling for how many embryos implant. And so for that reason, uh, P uh individuals with PCOS, um, often benefit from IVF because we can control for how many embryos will implant and not risk something like um, a higher order multiple gestation. Yeah, and, and I think um, the other thing to keep in mind uh, is that many 
women with PCOS um, have very, very good prognoses. It's one of the, the be- in terms of fertility, it's one of the um, better, uh, it's one of the, I don't know how the, what the right word is. I want to say easier. I don't know. It's one of the easier things um, to deal with and to treat. Not always. And some women have very severe polycystic ovary syndrome, which unfortunately results in um, kind of poor quality eggs potentially and some issues with IVF as well. But I mean, overall, um, I'd rather not have infertility, but if I had to pick an infertility diagnosis, PCOS would definitely be up there as one of the ones which um, typically uh, is a little bit easier to treat with simpler therapies. Um, and you know they will typically do better than some other patients with the more advanced therapies like in vitro fertilization as a general rule, I think. Uh, Dr. Fratarelli, can you um, tell us a little bit about when a patient who knows she has PCOS or is concerned that she has PCOS, when should they seek help with trying to get pregnant? Immediately. Um, I, I mean, I think it's, and that goes for any diagnosis that you have. If you know that there's a diagnosis that you need help with, you should seek help immediately. Um, if you're not certain, if you have, you know, if you if you have the diagnosis, I mean, you, you have to think about what's happening. If you're not if you're not menstruating, then you're not ovulating, so you need to be you need to see somebody. If you are menstruating, um, but you don't think you're ovulating, you're doing ovulation predictor kits, and they're not positive or they're kind of off, then you know you should you know seek help or you know seek some evaluation. Um, but if you have other symptoms associated with, with endometriosis, abnormal hair growth, or anything like that, you should probably you should seek uh, you should seek assistance um, as soon as you know or suspect that there's an issue. Yeah, um, I agree. I think um, if you know that that you have an issue, then don't wait um, because typically these things will get worse with time. Uh, not I mean, if, if you know your tubes are blocked, you don't you don't try for a year before you come have help, seek help. You you seek help immediately. And I agree with Dr. Carmon. The, the PCOS patients, I, I often tell them, you know, yeah, it's it sucks to have this PCOS, but for fertility purposes, your your outlook, your your chance, your your chance of having success is is astronomically high mm-hmm. compared to other fertility patients. Uh, because it's really just a matter of you're not releasing an egg, and, and we can get that to happen, or we can get eggs if we do IVF. Yeah, I, I tell my PCOS patients that statistically speaking, it's my PCOS patients that are more likely to get pregnant with twins, uh, because when we do convince their ovaries to share some of the eggs that they have been hoarding, that they're also more likely to drop more than one egg. So. Uh, it is my PCOS patients that are more likely to get pregnant with more than one baby at a time. We have another question here. Does a long cycle always mean that there is something wrong, such as PCOS? So uh, I'm assuming uh, a long cycle uh, from a fertility standpoint, we consider anything up to about 35 days as a normal variation of, of a menstrual cycle length. But beyond that, um, there's lots of different things that can cause the cycle to be longer. One of them, one of the more common things is PCOS, but not just PCOS. It could just be that the person is anovulatory, independent of PCOS, 
or much more concerning, something like premature ovarian insufficiency can also cause periods to space out. So if you used to have normal periods and suddenly they're taking, you're skipping months, um, something worth uh, evaluating by your, by your gynecology or by your gynecologist. Um, along that lines, could it just be natural for that person? And I think that is that person's uh, genetics. And, you know, that person, I've, I've had PCOS patients come to me before and tell me, well, I, I enjoy not having a period doc. Like I, I'm fine with only having two periods a year. Um, but from a medical perspective, that may not always be a healthy thing. And so uh, we can achieve um, uh, very few periods in a year, as long as we are medically managing that through some hormonal suppression uh, to keep her endometrial lining healthy. Um, so I think it can be natural. And as long as you're having a period at least every three months, we can probably just let that go if you're not trying to achieve pregnancy in that in that um, time frame. However, um, if you are trying to achieve pregnancy or if you are skipping for longer than three months, that probably does need some medical management. And I think it's important, it's important to realize that the menstrual cycles are not regular to the day where they're, you know, every 29 days, every 30 days, there's, there's a variability, right? So, you know, 28 to 35 days in that range is, would be considered normal and, and not irregular. Um, and, and having an, having one that might, come earlier or be late um, or a couple that might be early and come late, you know, over the course of a year is not ab abnormal either. Um, it's just, if it's happening consistently, then that's obviously a problem. But if most cycles are regular and then you have one that's 40 days and you, know, you probably just didn't ovulate that month for whatever reason, stress, other things happening, uh, but, but certainly not, not necessarily a concern if it's just happening once, once a year, twice a year. All right. Well, do either of you have any other comments that you'd like to share about PCOS or? No, I think we've reviewed most of um, what PCOS is all about, the basics here. Um, yeah, if there are other uh, questions, you guys can always write in later or give us a call um, and schedule a consultation with one of us, of course, if you guys are having any questions or concerns. But um, it was really nice talking to you guys about PCOS. Thank you guys yes. for joining us today. <laughs> yes, have a nice day, everybody. All right. Bye, guys.